Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about freedom of song, the Parents Music Resource Center in the 1980s, and America's modern flirtation with censorship. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, and I would like to thank you and commend you for calling this hearing. Because my wife has been heavily involved in the evolution of this issue, I have gained quite a bit of familiarity with it, and I've really gained an education in what is involved. Uh, I, am, I was interested uh, when the hearing uh, was first uh, announced to have the opportunity to ask uh, the heads of the record companies, so whether or not they felt to some responsibility. Uh, I am told by staff that every single one of the chief executive officers invited to, to participate chose uh, to decline that invitation. I, I fully understand that, but I wanted to note uh, that fact for the record. And, and I, I think that they should take a look at what their companies are doing and just ask themselves as human beings whether or not this is the way they want to uh, spend their lives, if this is the way they want to earn a living, if this is the kind of contribution they want to make to the society in, in which we live. No one's proposing or contemplating the government answering that question for them. Well, I think these hearings uh, should not have been held if we're not considering legislation or regulations at this time. I emphasized earlier that they might follow. I simply want to say to you that I suspect that unless the industry, quote, cleans up their act, and I use that end quote word again, uh, there's likely to be legislation. And it seems to me that it would not be too far removed from reality or too offensive to anyone if you could follow the general guidelines, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, that uh, are now in place with regard to the movie industry. be perfectly candid with you. I would look for regulations uh, of some kind of... Uh legislation, if it could be constitutionally accomplished, uh, unless, of course, we have these initiatives from the industry itself. And the way they sneak this into the mainstream, get it so these people get to go on TV talk shows about, oh, what about our children, is they go under the ruse of concerned parents. And nowhere is child-rearing in more danger from so-called concerned parents than it is from a group of wives of right-wing congressmen, mostly Democrats, in D.C. called the Parents Music Resource Center, the PMRC. They're the ones who somehow managed to pussy-whip their husbands into holding hearings in Congress that one of them modestly called the most widely publicized media event in congressional history, saying that there's porn rock, there's occult music, we've got to get rid of it all. And the way we're going to get rid of it and bypass constitutional law so no one sues is to pressure the record companies to do it themselves in the forms of a rating system, just like movies. But this one would go further. What they were asking for was the records could be have a warning sticker slapped on them for 
V for violent, O for occult. <laughs> Who's going to define what occult is? How about back in control? Back in control training center who says the Star of David is a satanic symbol, and yet they're thanked in the back of PMRC founder Tipper Gore's book. This is where these people are coming from. O for a cult. If that isn't obvious enough that these people, maybe they are a front for the religious right, if they're not, they're dupes. Uh, they also sent a guy to talk to Congress about wicked rock lyrics who neglected to tell the senators that he was the Reverend Jeff Ling. He says, oh yeah, I think these records should be taken completely off the shelves, and I think labeling will do that. And sure enough, it does. Some of these uh, chain stores you see in smaller towns that are like the only record outlet in town, they're located in chain shopping malls. The malls themselves are chains. And the owners of those chain shopping malls have been sending down memos saying they will evict any store that sells any record with any warning sticker on it whatsoever. Some of these stores are located nowhere but in chain shopping malls. So their choice is blackball some heavy metal, blackball dead Kennedys, or you can lose your lease, Jack, and go out of business. That's what this means, is behind the scenes blackballing that would never hold up in a court of law. Inappropriate Conversations number 40. Other High Crimes, I believe was the name of it, might be the last time I've started on Inappropriate Conversations with this kind of backward look to something which I think probably in the popular consciousness might be called dead and gone or old news. Probably the impact of the Parents Music Resource Center is roughly equivalent to the impact of the Clinton impeachment. It isn't unimportant. It isn't purely historical. In many ways, we're experiencing things politically today from both of those issues in the last, say, 30 years where decisions that were made have resonated to this very moment. It's not unusual to get a call for a special prosecutor every time there is some sort of political scandal or controversy, and that definitely ties back to the Clinton impeachment scandal, which I discussed in Inappropriate Conversations 40. And I think it's not unusual to see some of the issues that we're having today over what I will describe as prior restraint. And it obviously goes back well before the PMRC hearings in 1985-86, but certainly that was a turning point in the modern era. That previous inappropriate conversation is also a good example of a time when I've started off a show with a couple of clips, simply to set the record straight immediately, and then speak to it from there. There will be other clips that I share in this show as well, but I'll announce right up front that I don't intend to include any sound bites from John Denver or D. Snyder, and on some level that's a bit of a shame. If those sound bites were readily available to me, I probably would use them. Because as impressive as I found the testimony of Frank Zappa all those years ago, before the U.S. Senate Commerce Committee, or a subcommittee of that group, I also found the commentary that was offered that day by John Denver and Dee Snyder to be every bit as impressive. But I've started us off with a clip that comes to us through Frank Zappa. It's actually the version of this particular story told on his uh, posthumously released CD called Understanding America. On a previous occasion before this as well, Zappa had taken elements of the testimony before the Senate and turned them into a uh, negative land type collage sound recording. Porn Wars Deluxe is the name of this one, 25 minutes long, where he's mixed some interludes and some of the lyrics from his previous songs together with 
his own testimony before the Senate. And as you can tell from the start of this show, I wanted to make sure that I included commentary from both Al Gore and Fritz Hollings. I do not do so out of any respect for those two men. In previous inappropriate conversations, I've talked about my decision not to vote for Al Gore in 1980. It really was one of the key moments that I've, on a train I've been on more or less since then, not perfectly, but more or less since then, of voting for independence for president, because I don't trust either one of these political parties. I didn't trust the political motivation behind the Republican impeachment of Clinton, and I didn't trust Al Gore as far as I could throw him, because here he is leading in hearings where his wife was going to testify, trying to make her wishes come true in terms of as one of the so-called Washington wives on the Parents Music Resource Center. Gore is very careful in that initial clip to talk about how no legislation is being proposed because it is his, you know, he would have to recuse himself, obviously, if what they were proposing was going to turn into a bill or a vote. And he wanted to make sure that he could participate, that he could support his wife's cause. And the condescending and, frankly, shameful attitude that he takes toward producer of music and record labels Uh, other artists, during his introductory speech there is a pretty good indication of his goal. He wanted to use this soapbox as a way of bolstering what he had, his future presidential aspirations. As a U.S. senator at the time, now we think of him as being Vice President Al Gore, who later ran for president, but he landed in the vice presidential spot by initially campaigning for the role of President of the United States. And I, of course, was opposed to his initial campaign in the early 90s and would later be opposed to his vice presidency and obviously did not vote for him for president. So my turning point here with Al Gore goes a little bit more along the lines of what Jello Biafra had to say in the second clip. Now, in a minute, I'm going to get to the different drummer segment and kind of walk through the minefield that's naming Frank Zappa a different drummer. And I'm going to play a couple more examples of Frank Zappa's work. But really, if Jello Biafra hadn't been named a different drummer in the first 10 of these inappropriate conversations, then he would be the obvious choice instead for this spot. Because although he had no direct role to play in those hearings, he wasn't invited to testify. I doubt that he would have been, may not have gone even if he was. But his album, Frankenchrist, proved to be the one of the real turning points for the PMRC, the place where they actually persuaded, indirectly I'm assuming, the police in Los Angeles and San Francisco to arrest an artist for the content, not of the music on their album actually, but the content of the album design, the artwork that was inserted into the album itself. And I don't use the word artwork here lightly or sarcastically as one of the senators did in the opening statement. We're talking about Swiss surrealist artist H.R. Giger. There's absolutely no question that Giger, by any measure you want to apply, was an artist. His surrealist art may not be everyone's cup of tea, but it is nevertheless art. No need to put quotations around that. So you have an obvious conflict of interest right up front. And I think the conflict of interest is a real valid concern, even if the Commerce Committee wasn't talking about passing laws. But the reality is the Commerce Committee spent a lot of time talking about passing laws. And Frank Zappa, in particular, had the savvy to make sure that they were continuing to deal with their own hypocrisy by addressing the issue. Before he even began his testimony years and years ago, he started off by asking, just for quick clarification on whether this Senate committee was going to turn around and propose a law or not. Because 
while Gore, for his own selfish reasons, maintained that there would, there would not be legislation, Fritz Hollings and others were insistent that there probably should be, or certainly that there could be. So the entire time that the testimony was going on, both by the representatives of the Parents Music Resource Center and by artists like Zappa and um, Snyder and Denver, the specter of legislation was there. And that's where I want to call out a couple of elements of hypocrisy here. One of them, just the sheer, I'm going to say, ignorance of key United States senators sitting on a committee talking about issues related to the First Amendment, talking about relevant recent Supreme Court cases, and clearly not having the first clue. I didn't share this particular segment in any of the clips that I pulled, but at one point, Hollings and later another Senator Gordon were talking about... The Pacifica ruling related to George Carlin. Now, let me say up front that if you didn't notice from the clips I shared, there'll be other clips I'm going to share in the near future. and This will have an explicit language tag on it. It's hard to talk about record labeling and albums with explicit lyrics and not use the explicit language. And, and I'll start right now. When George Carlin got himself in trouble and that Pacifica case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, it was over a comedy routine and words he was sharing on albums. He later turned this into the seven words you can't say on television, or perhaps that was actually the track that led to the Supreme Court case itself. Words like shit, piss, cunt, fuck, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Not to steal Carlin's shtick. But that was essentially the kind of language that led to the Supreme Court deciding what? Deciding that radio stations could be stopped by the FCC or other entities from playing those things over the public airwaves. But Hollings, in particular, and other senators, in the midst of the testimony that they were hearing, clearly couldn't discern the difference between radio stations, public airwaves, the role of the FCC, and what might be played on a Walkman or a Discman or a record player inside someone's home. Or for that matter, something that was volitionally played by somebody on a cassette, on a cassette deck, inside their car. Now, I could see that there might be a case of some sort of disturbing the peace variety if somebody was doing what would later happen, and really only a couple of years later, in rap, where maybe you're playing the rap cassette a little bit louder than you should, and the language is leaving your car, and then hitting the public airwaves that way. But a parent doesn't have a complaint against a record company or a performing artist if the airwaves inside their home are being polluted by something that that parent most likely paid for by subsidizing the music purchase of their child, either through an allowance or through being very tolerant about what part of the income a child may have made mowing the lawn or working at a fast food job, how much of that income they were able to keep as opposed to save. In other words, the parent is sitting in the position of economic primacy there. It's their home. It's their castle. It's probably their record player that's being used, or a record player that they purchased for a child, or allowed Santa or someone else to provide for the child through the exchange of gifts at holidays or birthdays. It's all in the parent. Now, one of the things I need to worry about a little bit, and it's going to be true for, the, for a few upcoming inappropriate conversations, and that's repetition. I don't feel that I've run out of original stories to tell, Again, as I've said before, I feel like I'm a storyteller by nature. But every now and then, I'm going to hit a topic where it might make sense to repeat a story. For Inappropriate Conversations 150, for example, 
I kind of intend to go into some detail about a little bit more of a scriptural perspective. It'll be one of the religion-focused episodes. And I'm going to talk about scriptures I've talked about before. I'm going to read from the Bible passages I've read before. And I think that it will be the very least interesting to someone who's not a Christian, and perhaps even mind-blowing for some people who are Christians, because of the, as I've mentioned before, the state of biblical literacy in America in particular is, is pretty pathetic. So at what point am I going to be rehashing an old story? And should I worry about it? I mean, there's a concept in church of the idea of, I love to tell the story for those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it from the rest. It may be okay to tell a story I've told before, especially if it's popping up in a relevant way in a slightly different context in another later show. And I'm a little naive, I suppose, to even think that it's possible that there are very many people who've heard all 147 previous inappropriate conversations, not to mention, you know, 16, 17 Walk the Earth episodes, and would, if they did hear them all, would have any recall of them all. So in other words, from time to time, a little bit of repetition is not necessarily a bad thing. The example that I will use here is the story, you know, when I worked in record stores as a manager, it was a bit of a rogue element, I suppose, but my approach was very, very pro-customer. But the real question there is, how do you define customer? A customer is somebody that I'm doing business with and intend to continue doing business with and hold out the highest of hopes that they will continue to do business with me. So there have been times in the past where I have told my cashiers, when I was working in particular as a front-end manager, kind of managing the cash, the cash area, and customer returns in particular, I would tell my cashiers that... I do not want a negative experience to happen when a customer is returning product. I realize, especially for an inexperienced cashier, that that refund process can seem like it's all negative, that you're making the the final you know, balance at the end of the night lower, not higher. You're getting us further away from any sales goals or sales targets we might have. Plus, you have paperwork to fill out, which on a regular transaction, you're not going to have that much paperwork unless it's a credit card purchase. But then again, the credit card purchases tend to be larger in terms of the total ticket, making it worth the effort, I suppose. But I didn't want any cashiers playing a hero and trying to defend me or the other people in the store by hassling customers who brought product back. And essentially my technique was to tell the cashier group that they needed to think in terms of how much money any one customer was going to spend during their earthly lifetime on music, assuming that the person lived to an average, ordinary lifespan, and assuming that our store was going to be in business for the entire time that customer was alive. How much money would that customer spend on music? Happily spend. Get to the end of their life, probably not even regretting the fact that could be as much as $40,000 being spent on music on, a again, a long lifetime of a average to maybe above average music lover doesn't get us anywhere near the total expenditures of somebody who is absolutely a music fanatic but i settled in on the number 40,000 maybe 45,000 just to throw out that at the time the average retail on a compact disc was $15 and my message to my cashier was do not under any circumstances allow $15 to interfere with the balance of the $45,000 that person's going to spend the rest of their lifetime the return on investment of treating a customer right, of giving people the benefit of the doubt, of trusting them until they've proven that they're a thief, for example, 
is so much more valuable than what you tend to see in some retail organizations where you're sort of treated like you're passing between an Iron Curtain kind of situation. You're moving from West Germany to East Germany. You're treated like a thief. You're treating like a suspect. You're an enemy of the state. You've got to show all your papers. And I said, forget about that. Even if I'm 100% sure that I can't remember this person buying this CD from me, unless I can tell that it was some sort of a cutout or record club product, as long as it was bought from a retailer and I can return it to the record label or to at least my corporate office and say, this is a refund I took on product we sell, I want us to be very quick to get the customer to the point of satisfaction, whether that's satisfaction with a refund or satisfaction with an even exchange. Make it as easy as you possibly can. But here's the point. The main thing I told my cashiers was, don't be treating the customer like they're a jerk and then call me up as the manager and expect me to save the day. Because when you mistreat a customer, you turn them from being a customer when they walked in the door, even if they're an unhappy one to not a customer anymore when they walk out the door. And my attitude is, if I'm not going to get the balance of the $45,000, I might as well keep the fifteen. And I had, on some occasions, refused to give the refund to customers in situations where they didn't have the receipt, and it was clearly product we never really carried. And for another customer, I might have been more than happy to bend over backwards, bite the bullet, take the loss, keep them satisfied. But if that customer came in, um, swearing at us, uh, vowing never to shop in our store again no matter what we did, and literally making it impossible for what I was hoping was the best customer service experience, not just in the city we lived in, but maybe in the entire country, or at least that the role I played inside the record company I worked with would be a shining exception to the norm that you'd see across our competition. Our competition at the time was, in some cases, some of their competitors were more interested in selling washers, dryers, and stereos than they were CDs. It wasn't hard to beat that level of customer service. And within the mall environment, we were clearly number one. But every now and then, you'd have a customer who would either come in and antagonize my staff, or my staff would antagonize me, them, in which case they'd hear from me about it. But if the only thing I'm ever going to have from that customer the rest of their life is the 15 bucks I'm not going to refund them, I was inclined on certain occasions to not refund the $15. I tell the story, and it applies directly to this notion of the Parents Music Resource Center. The distance between what they said they were doing to the public, what they said they were doing to the U.S. Congress, what actually happened, and what it meant, might be best to tell one of the worst customer service experiences I ever had being on the receiving end of a customer who was on a tirade. I'll start off by saying this. At no point did anyone including these senators who heard from, again, Washington wives and musicians, say that there was a law that made it illegal for the record store to sell an album to somebody with or without a warning label. The warning label was theoretically supposed to be just exactly that, a heads up to parents. And the policy that came from the corporate office for the store I worked at was really simple. If this warning label is in place, and if the malls we're doing business with are going to allow us to continue to do business with records that have the warning label on it, which my experience was that that was true. Jello Biafra was not wrong in the intro. There were other companies where the opposite occurred, where all that product, and in some cases the entire artists, were stripped out of the stores. Walmart is an accurate, that's an accurate depiction that Jello Biafra offered. But for us, the product was allowed to be in the store. Some negotiation must have happened to enable that to occur across 500 plus stores, coast to coast. But our rule was, if you bought an album with an explicit language sticker, our cashiers told you you were doing it. It doesn't seem as awkward as you might think. 
It's a simple matter of customer service. Say, by the way, you're getting the version that has explicit language on it. Is that going to be okay for you in your home? We would offer that same spiel pretty much verbatim, whether you were 7 years old or 77 years old or 107 years old. To us, it was a customer service approach. Do you know what you're buying and is what you're buying what you want? In fact, on occasion, we would actually do the opposite as well. When the record labels, led primarily from my perspective by the rap groups, started releasing two versions, sort of a bleeped out and a non-bleeped out version. It's a little bit easier to, to bleep and squiggle words in what is primarily a somewhat spoken medium, like rap. It's a little bit harder with rock and roll. But with the rap artists, we began getting two versions, the clean version and the not-so-clean version, and we would tell people the opposite as well. Somebody, I can remember being at the register, somebody would come up with a copy of the Black Sunday CD by Cypress Hill, and I would say, are you aware of the fact that this is the version that doesn't have explicit language on it? Just making sure that's what you wanted to get and that it would be okay in your home. And what that would spare us as a record company would be enduring the refunds of what could in many cases be unsaleable product. If the person got to the car, realized it wasn't the one they wanted, came back and bought the, the explicit language version anyway. I'm going to get to this at the end. The explicit language tag, despite the fact that it hurt some record companies, hurt them badly, and removed artists from stores like Walmart, it ultimately didn't accomplish anywhere near what the Parents Music Resource Center and their allies wanted to do, which was record banning. Jeff Ling, who was a you know, consort or an ally or an advisor, I, I hesitate to call him an expert witness, but an advisor to the Parents Music Resource Center, was very open about the fact that his hope was that once that sticker was in place, that American parents would rise up and assert their rights and, and remove those albums, not just from their homes, but from the record stores and perhaps even from the record labels. And Al Gore, in the opening to this show, basically says the same thing, that he was dismayed that the record companies weren't willing to do some sort of witch hunt. Witch hunt is what it is. And the government overstepped its bounds by trying to impose prayer restraint and I'm sure I would have been a big disappointment to Al Gore and his wife as well. Because, again, my policy, complying with my company's corporate policy, was to say, you're buying an album that has explicit language on it. Are you sure that's welcome in your home? Well, one day, and we were good at this. I don't think we ever slipped up. I would have per perhaps written up or fired a cashier. I definitely would have fired a cashier who refused to offer that alert. Again, not because I was trying to... You know, get people to not buy what we might say is the original version of albums. I wasn't trying to push the clean versions. I just didn't want to be in a situation where somebody who needed a clean version bought the wrong one, got in trouble with their parents, and forced a refund. Any more than I wanted somebody who wanted the explicit language version of an album to buy one that was bleeped out and come back and again force a refund. It wasn't that I just wanted to make the refund process be as efficient and as pleasant as possible for the customer. I also wanted to avoid the refund process as much as possible. So one Saturday morning, in a fairly busy time, a woman came in with one of our bags, one of our CDs, receipt included, there never really would have been a question about it, on a rampage. And in the midst of, without using profanity, calling us every name in the book, including evil and satanic, returning a Marilyn Manson CD that, sh that her daughter had bought. Her 14-year-old daughter had come to the mall alone with cash, had picked up the CD, which is what she wanted, gone to the cash register, heard our cashier say, this has explicit language on it, are you sure that's going to be welcome in your home? And her answer to that question was yes. Now, 
I don't know anything about the 14-year-old girl beyond the things that I'm assuming to be true because it was true every single day of the week in my store. She may have said yes, thinking that it wouldn't be a big deal for her parents. She may have said yes, thinking that her parents would never find out she had the album in the first place. She may have said yes because she didn't care what the cashier said, didn't understand her, and was agreeing to whatever came out of that cashier's mouth. That I don't know. What I do know was that I met the woman, clear because I didn't want her, in her state, uh, setting any of my cashiers back. I wanted my cashiers dealing with customers doing refunds in the most positive way possible, but every now and then, that's not going to be possible, because the customer comes in angry. I mean, as upset as I would have been at any one of my team members for making that customer that angry, there's not much you can do when she comes through the door that way. So I intercepted, immediately apologized, told her that, yes, it was an explicit language version, no, there wasn't any alternative to the explicit language version, and that refunding her money or offering her credit for anything in the store would not be a problem. We would take care of it immediately. Uh, no questions asked, no issues. This was unsatisfactory to her. She was about as angry as you could be, not specifically because her daughter bought a CD that she didn't approve of. Her real issue was that the CD existed in the first place. And I think perhaps on the drive home, kind of replaying the entire encounter in her mind, she might have come to the conclusion that really there wasn't much a store manager in a mall in a you know, moderate to big Midwestern city was going to be able to do about influencing whether that artist made that album and might not have that much control over the assortment itself in terms of deciding which music to carry and which music not to carry, that a lot of those decisions would be made at the corporate office of any given record store and at the record labels themselves. But my offer of an immediate refund did not satisfy her, and getting her the money back did not get her out the door. She was lingering, she was complaining, she was loud, she was disrespectful, she was angry, she was confrontational. And at one point I wondered whether or not we were going to need to contact mall security to have her removed. It was at that point that I looked at her and asked her if I would be fair in assuming that we were never going to see her in any of our stores as a customer again. She confirmed that I was not just right, that I was being uh, ridiculous because it was obvious that no one should be a customer of a store that sells this filth and she went off on a tirade again. So I led her to the door by speaking to her in a way that she would follow me, and I was basically talking her out of the building. And in the process, I said to her, well, there is one piece of good news here, and that's that, you know, your daughter's still alive. And I don't know if she knew what to make out of that, whether I, it was some sort of a veiled threat, which it wasn't, or whether I was you know, saying something idiotic that didn't make sense to her. I think that was probably where she was. But I looked at her and I said, you know, the primary issue that I've got, ma'am, is that you've transferred the parental responsibility for what your daughter listens to from you, where it belongs as a parent, to me, where, frankly, it doesn't belong. Our company has a policy. We make sure that if the customer wants something, they get it. We make sure the customers don't leave here with any misgivings about what it is they bought. If that parental warning label is on there, we call it out to them. If there's no parental warning on one where there, there's another version that has a parental warning, we call it out to them. We're not constrained by any laws or any corporate rules about age groups. How could I take an ID from a 14-year-old? Does your daughter have photo ID? Do I have to not sell product to people who don't have a driver's license? I just said, that's not how we do it here. We make sure that people get what they want. But as for you, and I did look at her and say, as for you, you're lucky your daughter's alive. 
because you sent your daughter to the mall with $20, owning no responsibility whatsoever as a parent for what she did with that money. The accountability, if she spent the money in an inappropriate way, doesn't belong to you at all. But I've got news for you. $20 will buy a lethal dose of crack cocaine. I don't sell crack cocaine. This is not my problem. My daughter is not deceiving me about what she buys at the mall. This is not my problem. I'd say that we never saw her as a customer again, but that was a given from the second she drove to the mall that Saturday morning in a huff because she had an expectation that the store was either by some sort of law or some sort of rule incapable of carrying this music or if we carried it incapable of selling it or if we sold it incapable of selling it to a teenage girl. There was an inherent ageism and sexism in many of her assumptions, but the reality is Who are you sending to the mall with $20 to begin with if you do not think that they can be trusted to buy things which are appropriate in your home? And in many ways, the store I worked at took a step way beyond what any other store at the time that we encountered did in asking people, are you sure this is welcome in your home? Now, what's my beef with Al Gore? Despite him being fairly dishonest in terms of sitting on a hearing as a the husband of somebody testifying, claiming it wasn't a conflict of interest because no laws were being passed, but all the while admitting that he was turning the screws on the record labels in private conversations and that the hearings were there to pose the threat of legislation to force the record labels to take certain actions because they liked the model of movie theater rating system, which was in itself a compromise from previous congressional use of prior restraint to implement forms of censorship. So he wasn't being very honest to begin with. But one of my issues with it was the witch hunt that it encouraged. Some people believed that those congressional hearings actually led to some legislation. They did not. But other local municipalities like San Antonio were passing laws that were putting them in a place where they could arrest musicians for singing certain songs in concert. And, you know, again, probably uh, not that worried over plays that were formed in the Metropolitan Performing Arts Center, plays using some of the same language and discussing some of the same adult themes. But the issue was the concert. One state, near the one that I lived in at the time, was actually passing laws that would arrest the cashier and the store manager. Not if the store sold an explicit language stickered album to somebody who was underage. That was going on, too, across the country in various municipalities where I don't think anything panned from because it would have been censorship to have done it. But to pass a law that would have made it illegal for the store to carry product that needed a label but didn't have one. This was a voluntary program. The record labels were deciding on their own what carried a warning sticker and what didn't carry a warning sticker. And the law in Oklahoma, to use them as an example, would have specified warning sticker for sexual innuendo and non-profane use of terminology to describe sexual acts, meaning that the record company that I was a part of actually had high-level meetings suggesting that the stores in Oklahoma might have to add the another sticker, a store-based sticker, to every product we sold. Because the problem that Oklahoma was going to have was if you tried to pick and choose which products to sticker and which products not to sticker, You're limiting yourself to the IQ of any given county sheriff or district attorney. If we've got U.S. senators who don't understand the meaning of the term public airwaves, 
who don't understand the First Amendment and don't think anyone who disagrees with them understands it either, that you're going to have problems getting laws where the right interpretation of what explicit language is. Here in just a minute, I'm going to get to the different drummer and call out that he has an album that's instrumental. It's a jazz album, no lyrics whatsoever. He's got a parental, ad warning, a parental advisory sticker on that album, placed on that album over his objections by the record label that was afraid that the use of the word hell in the title, Jazz from Hell, could set the PMRC on a rampage, because obviously now Frank Zappa had become public enemy number one in their minds. And the album had a song called G-Spot Tornado, but an instrumental song. How can you have explicit lyrics on a song with no lyrics? We would have placed in the Oklahoma stores a warning sticker on every copy of Ravel's Bolero in our classical music section, regardless of who was performing it, because Bolero had been used as the theme music to the Dudley Moore film 10, where there was a great deal of sexual content in the film, and Ravel's Bolero was musically a piece of that, almost a character in some scenes. And the concern was that because of the sexual innuendo in the movie 10, would it taint the classical music that predated it by you know scores of years in such a way that we would have to sticker with a parental warning advisory a piece of classical music with no language on it. You couldn't pick and choose. If somebody said something that could be interpreted as the word shit, but maybe not the word shit, you'd have to take you'd have to take the more cautious route. You couldn't possibly sell a copy of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon without an, an extra advisory sticker on it, because the record label had decided that don't give me that do-goody-goody bullshit line from the song Money on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. At the time, the best-selling album in rock music history. Well, you'd have to sticker that, because... Is bullshit profane? Well, shit is profane. So you'd have to answer the question of whether or not your cashier could get arrested, thrown in jail, or at least have to post bail over selling an album that doesn't have the warning sticker on it to a kid. To me, the most comical one, I know I've shared this before, but Garth Brooks at the time was writing the highest wave possible on his No Fences album, still one of my all-time favorite country music albums, with some of my favorite country music songs. A great, great album, but the song Two of a Kind, Working on a Full House, includes this lyric. She's my honeycomb, and I'm her sugar cane. We really fit together, if you know what I'm talking about. We're two of a kind, working on a full house. That is obviously sexual innuendo. Obvious to everyone who isn't from Garth Brooks' home state in Oklahoma, because I don't think the Oklahoma legislature realized that if their, if their proposed law had passed which it didn't. But if it had passed, we wouldn't have been able to sell Garth Brooks' No Fences without slapping an ugly yellow warning sticker right on the front of every single one of those cassettes, which probably would have led to customer refunds, customer returns, or who knows, an aggressive city prosecutor deciding that maybe one of the cities we were living in couldn't sell anything with a label on it. There are those who rejoiced when Walmart and other record chains removed all of the parental warning advisory albums from their stores. But if the parental stickering had actually been done properly, or done properly to the standard that was proposed by the legislature in Oklahoma, that same rule would have meant that Garth Brooks' No Fences and perhaps his entire catalog, the whole guilt by association thing, was really hard and heavy at that time, would have had to pull all that music from, from the shelves. The reality is, we're all responsible for our own stuff. And as somebody in his late teens, at, you know, at the time that 
some of this stuff was, you know, uh, some of the controversial albums that were mentioned in the mid '80s by the Parents Music Resource Center were ten, you know, ten years old by then, or at least five years old by then. I was in my late teens when those albums came out, and among them, I found to be so far away from poisoning my mind that I didn't even take them seriously. But that's okay because some of them weren't meant to be taken seriously, including the work of Frank Zappa. I guess it's wet t-shirt time again. Here at the Brasserie, home of the tits. <laughs> and it's the charming Mary from Canoga Park up next in her bid for the semifinals. Hi, Mary. How you doing? Hi. Where are you from? Uh, the bus. <laughs> Which one? You know, the last tour. Oh, you know, leather. Oh, you were the girl that was stuck to seat 38 on Fido 3. Why don't you get in position now and take a deep breath? Because this water is very, very cold, but it's going to be so stimulating. And Mary's the kind of red-blooded American girl who'll do anything, I said, anything, anything for 50 bucks. That's right. I really need the 50 bucks. I'm, you know, I got to get home. Yeah, I know. Your father is waiting for you in the tool shed. That's right. You heard right. Our big prize tonight is 50 American dollars to the girl with the most exciting mammalian protuberances. Here I am. As viewed through a thoroughly soaked, stupid-looking, white sort of male person's conservative kind of middle-of-the-road cotton, undergarment, whoopee, <laughs> and here comes the water. Yes, I know this excerpt from Frank Zappa's Joe's Garage on a song called, originally maybe Wet T-Shirt Night, but later rebranded Fimbot in a Wet T-Shirt, is immature. But then again, I probably wasn't that mature when I first heard it. I just remember hearing this song in 1979 when it first came out and finding it to be one of the funniest pieces of rock music I'd ever heard. And maybe three years later, when I was by that time old enough to legally buy the album no matter how you looked at it, was driving down the road and listening to the song on a cassette or on a, you know, probably on a cassette back then, and still finding it to be so funny that at one point I actually had to pull over because if I didn't, tears might be streaming down my face listening to the comic material that was intentionally put out there. Frank Zappa as an artist is guilty of many things, including whimsy. His music tends to have a great deal of theatricality to it, and this is one example. When I get to the end here, I'll make a point that if anyone uh, has kept Zappa at an arm's distance, I understand that. To me, the best of Frank Zappa is perhaps his testimony before the PMRC, which more likely than not you're going to be able to find on YouTube if you go look for it. The testimony of John Denver and Dee Snyder are also well worth the time. But if you wanted to dive into a single Zappa album, the one I'd recommend is Joe's Garage. Either Joe's Garage Act 1, because at the time I heard it, it was the only act that had been you know, created and released so far, or the two CD set, Joe's Garage Acts 1, 2, and 3, um, you have to get past some of the political incorrectness of Zappa, the blackface on the cover of the CD I've got being really a good example. But even as early as 79, Zappa was predicting things that the Parents Music Resource Center wouldn't get around to doing for another five or six years. Here's a quote from the liner notes of the CD. All governments perpetuate the, themselves through a daily commission of acts which a rational person might find to be stupid or dangerous or both. Naturally, our government is no exception. 
For instance, if the president, any of them, went on TV and sat there with a flag in the background, or maybe a little rustic scene on a little backdrop plus the flag, and stared sincerely into the camera and told everybody that all energy problems and all inflationary problems had been traced and could be solved by the abolition of music. Chances are that most people would believe him and think that the illegalization of this obnoxious form of noise pollution would be a small price to pay for the chance to buy gas like the good old days. No way. Never happen. The records are, well, records are made out of oil. And all the big rock shows go from town to town in their fuel-gobbling 45-foot trucks. And when they get there, they use up enormous amounts of electrical energy with their lights, their amplifiers, their PA systems, their smoke machines, and all those synthesizers. Look at the, all the plastic they got in those. And the guitar picks, you name it. Joe's Garage is a stupid story about how government is going to try to do away with music, a prime cause of unwanted mass behavior. It's sort of like a really cheap kind of high school play, the way it might have been done 20 years ago, with all the sets made out of cardboard boxes and poster paint. It's like those lectures that local narcs used to give, where they show you a display of all the different ways you can get wasted with all the pills and all the weed and so forth and so on. In other words, Frank Zappa, in his notes for Joe's Garage, basically predicted, basically set out the playbook for the Parents Music Resource Center. Find the most inflammatory examples you can, certain elements of heavy metal, certain elements of what we later call alternative rock, and point to it and say, that's the reason for everything that's wrong in our society today, and therefore, it ought to be banned. So let's talk about the complexity that is Frank Zappa. First off, why talk about this topic now? If I just wait another year or two, I could be dealing really formally with the 30th anniversary of events. A lot of the posts that you can find on YouTube and elsewhere, or articles, refer to the 25th anniversary of these events, just a couple of three years ago. But no, this is the uh, anniversary of Frank Zappa's death. 10th anniversary, I believe. Death by prostate cancer. Zappa maintained throughout these hearings that he was not a drug user and was frankly just about as anti-drug as any musician uh, of popular culture of his time. Now, he died of prostate cancer, but his family has come along and named 2014 the Year of Zappa. Actually, from late 2013 um, all the way until late 2014, kind of covering the 12 forward months after the anniversary of his death. So we're a little bit past that 10-year mark. That's an interesting reason to tie Zappa in and to look backward toward the Parents Music Resource Center, I think it also has to set off a bit of a douchebag alert, right? And that's the other thing that I will say, just kind of on the negative side. There's an article that I put out on the Inappropriate Conversations page for uh, on Facebook. Uh, Inappropriate Conversations is on Facebook, listed as a cause there. You can also find a page on Facebook for Walk the Earth. I don't believe I tweeted this. If I did, you'd find it by looking at, at IC underscore Greg, which is where my Twitter post can be found. But I know on July 22nd, I put it out on Inappropriate Conversations, an article called The Ten Biggest Classic Rock Douchebags. And number one was Frank Zappa. Quoting the article, it was published on uh, blogs.citypages.com by Johnny Whiteside, was the uh, author. He says this, Zappa was a self-appointed authority figure who did nothing but ceaselessly bitch, piss, and moan without ever offering a single solution or so much an attempt at constructive criticism. He bitched about society, put down rock and roll, affected a strident elitist intellect, 
and generally made an ass of himself. Zappa was always right, always knew best, and he was always way, way ahead of anybody else. Zappa was really just an overstimulated, unfocused megalomaniac who wanted to come off as smarter than you, and you, and you, and that painfully cute experimental crap he passed off as music. You can sit around and listen to that garbage all day. Just don't call it rock and roll. Well, a couple of beefs I've got with this. I say that I've got beefs, although I'm quoting it here, and I put it on my Facebook page. In many ways, he's not wrong. Frank Zappa really was one of the most annoying people in rock and roll. But the thing about it is, I don't think that he failed to offer solutions. If you look at his interviews on TV shows like Crossfire, he was trying to focus what was essentially a witch hunt into solutions. I saw an article not long ago uh, about debate techniques. It said, basically... If you're getting nowhere with somebody because they're not really trying to debate you, they're, they're trying to get away with one logical fallacy after another, and you really just want to put an end to it and perhaps even win the argument, ask them to outline their solution. This is what I do, frankly, when conversation about questions of health care come up and the funding of health care, because I've got to be honest, I don't have the answers. It's a good reason why I haven't done a handful of inappropriate conversations about Affordable Care Act and other things related to you know, financing healthcare because I don't think I have the answers. I don't know that I can lay out the plan. I can certainly lay out Christian principles, which makes me a very strange Christian because most people in the religious right are pretty far away from Jesus on the question of the Affordable Care Act and how to finance healthcare in America. But just asking them to lay out their plan pretty much shuts them down. But Zappa went into those PMRC hearings capable of putting together a plan a plan that would have worked, a plan that was in some ways sort of neutralizing. He gave them a negating argument. He basically said, we've just heard a whole bunch of bitching and moaning from Washington wives about the sky is falling. The sky is not falling. If you want parents to be able to see the lyrics on every album their kid buys, print the lyrics. Next question. All you got to do is figure out how to pay for it. So no, I think Zappa was actually guilty of offering solutions in many cases. And as far as his music, was it experimental? Absolutely. Was it rock and roll? I don't even think Zappa would say that most of what he was doing, most of the time, was rock and roll. The clip I played at the start of this Different Drummer segment, I think reveals that in just a few seconds of time, that what you're almost talking about is musical theater in some ways. So naming Frank Zappa the biggest douchebag in rock and roll, and having among your reasons the fact that he didn't play rock and roll, doesn't make a lot of sense to me, especially when Zappa would have said, now he was doing sound collages, sound experiences, uh, experiments, jazz from hell, modern classical music. And I think in some ways he's probably overpraised for his range. But I don't believe he's overpraised for his skill as a guitarist. The problem is that for many music critics, being a guitarist means you have to play rock and roll. And that's, that's a little bit misplaced. The All Media Guide article at www.allmusic.com for Frank Zappa, written by William Ruhlman, mentions that included in the mix of things Zappa did would have been the literary traditions that included beat poets like Allen Ginsberg and edgy comedians like Lenny Bruce. And I think that although that's perhaps praise that maybe Zappa doesn't deserve, certainly in the former case, in the latter case, I think that it's right on target that Zappa in many ways was uh, testifying before Congress to accomplish the same feat, I suppose, that Lenny Bruce was trying to establish in the comedy club circuit, trying to challenge an America that prides itself on being the land of the free and the home of the brave for also being a country that, for whatever reason, favors censorship. 
And the other problem that I think Zappa was calling out pretty much loudly and clearly was that his understanding of the phrase Congress shall make no law certainly exceeded your average U.S. senator and exceeded senators like the one I'm going to play here in just a moment by a mile. Senator Gordon, at one point in the testimony, tells Zappa that uh, he's lost any respect that he might have had for Zappa and his argument. But let's be honest. These Washington husbands in some cases of Washington wives, and others not a direct relationship, had already made up their mind where they stood on things. It was a courtesy to have invited somebody like Zappa. They invited John Denver probably because they thought he was going to be on their side, and they got more than they bargained for with D. Snyder. It was tempting to name D. Snyder as a different drummer, but I really think on the question of censorship, the work done by Jello Biafra, a former different drummer, and Frank Zappa, exceeds the admittedly self-serving but incredibly meaningful testimony of D. Snyder. Senator Gordon. Mr. Zappa, I uh, am astounded at the uh, courtesy and soft-voiced uh, nature of the comments of my friend, the senator from Tennessee. I can only say that I find your statement to be boorish. Uh, <clears throat> incredibly and uh, insensitively insulting to the people who were here previously that you could manage to give the First Amendment the Constitution of the United States a bad name if I felt that you had the slightest understanding of it, which I do not, and have the slightest understanding of the difference between government action and private action, and that uh, you would have certainly destroyed any case you might otherwise have had with this center. I gave Biafra credit earlier for being the lead singer of Dead Kennedys and one of the probably most direct victims of the Parents Music Resource Center's witch hunt and the aftermath that followed. And I'm going to give Biafra um, a little bit of a, of a last word here on this topic. I think he's got a lot to say. And interestingly, he speaks from the perspective of what he would do as a parent, knowing that he wasn't a parent and perhaps might never be a parent. And his understanding of parenting by far exceeds any of the moms and dads represented on the other side of the ledger in the entire PMRC situation. If I were a parent and my kid brought home something that I felt might be harmful to his emotional growth or whatever, like, say, Top Gun on video <laughs> or uh, Sammy Hagar album, I wouldn't just hit the roof and grab the whole thing away, would that teach the kid that what he bought might screw up his head? No. It would just reinforce the idea that daddy just doesn't understand and daddy's mean and daddy's a fascist. He took my record away. <laughs> what I would do is sit down with the kid and say, okay, you went out and bought this thing. Why? <laughs> Tell me why you like it. Tell me what you see in it. What does it mean to you? What do you think they're trying to say? And now I'll tell you why I don't like it. It seems to me, Mrs. Gore, that rational communication and discussion is a far healthier way to help nurture a loving family. 
Your letter claims you are not an uptight prude who wants to ban rock, yet you keep trying to restrict our music to your own idea of normal sex and sensuality. I was born in the USA, too. I do not need a bouffant-encrusted thought police (laughs) to tell me or any younger kids what they can listen to. Your fantasies of laws that wash our art out with soap would be a whole lot funnier if the PMRC had more money, less money and power. I would urge cream readers, people who love music, and you to keep an eye out for censorship going on in your area. Who's trying to shut down the radio stations and why? And oftentimes it'll be one crank who will get the ear of the FCC or the college president. Nobody shows up to give the other side. Somebody has to show up. After all, which consumer revolt really has more numbers? People who don't like music or people who do? Hi, this is Will Tristrummer for those about to rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplesyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but, you know, we try our best. I followed up that clip with a promotion for For Those About to Rock, one of the most consistently delivered and high-quality podcasts on the Simply Syndicated network. And it seems like every week the guys from For Those About to Rock are celebrating music that the PMRC would have real problems with and doing so by reviewing the albums using language and uh, examples and anecdotes that the PMRC would have real problems with. So hats off to the guys from For Those About to Rock. The next thing that would have come out of Biafra's mouth would have been a list of people that he doesn't think anybody who cares about rock music should do business with. And every now and then I get a strange look from people when I tell them, I don't drink Coors beer, never have, never will. The never have is a little bit of a stretch, but starting around 1986 or so, from that point on, and certainly by the time Jello Biafra recorded the No More Cocoons album, which is where the clips I've shared from him was originally released, around that time, yeah, I was done with Coors beer. I was done with 7-Up. I've only once flight American Airlines since that period of time, and it was when I was rerouted from a flight on United that got canceled. I don't have any uh, stock advice that I take from Merrill Lynch. And there are other people who are guilty of bankrolling the Parents Music Resource Center and therefore you know, not people that I want to do business with. This was not a boycott in the sense of, again, more of the witch hunt mentality where <clears throat> if we just make a big stink, get a bunch of publicity, and try to stop people from shopping at a certain store, then maybe that store will fire all the gays for us, or whatever Whatever people who do these kind of boycotts think. Now, this was, this was very self-serving, much like I ushered that woman out of my store and sort of agreed with her that she should probably never shop with me again. I also knew that if my career was being threatened, if my livelihood, my kids were being threatened by something like the Parents Music Resource Center, if I was being threatened with jail in states if I'd been transferred to a store in Oklahoma, that I'm certainly not going to do business with the people who are bankrolling that. That would have been the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, but it also would have been Coors, 7-Up, American Airlines, Merrill Lynch, and others. But the other beef that I've got with it is the assumption that parenting has to get this sort of governmental support. Paula Hawkins, one of the well, one of the worst senators in the history of the United States Senate, if you ask me, um, was you know going on and on about what, what are parents to do? Who's going to help the parents? Parents should be encouraged to parent. 
This was a message that Frank Zappa delivered, but was also delivered very, very well by Dee Snyder. He was being challenged by pompous assholes, if you want to use what I think is probably the right term for it, sitting in their U.S. senatorial positions of privilege, acting as if he wasn't a father or capable of being a father, as if he wasn't a husband, as if he wasn't somebody who who could be trusted, really treating him like crap. And Snyder, in his testimony, answered him straight up. says, he's able to be on the road touring with his band as often as he is because he's married the woman of his dreams, that they are parenting together. And the man asked him, well, hey, 10 years from now, when your parent, when your kid grows up and he's a teenager, you're saying you're going to have time to listen to all the music that he's listening to? Snyder says, I hope I'm listening to all the music he's listening to because I don't intend to grow old and become a hypocrite. They asked him, well, how would you even have time to do it if you're on tour? He told rock and roll is a short-term business. He's not going to be dressing up in makeup and donning the costume and singing and screaming, we're not going to take it, 10 years from now. He's made millions of dollars already as the lead singer of Twisted Sister. At some point, he'll be able to retire and do something that keeps him closer to home, that enables him to be the husband and the father that he'll need to be as his kids get into that elementary school age and beyond. So what's the rest of that story? What happened there? We'll let Snyder tell it in part because he does so with a snarkiness that I deeply, deeply appreciate. Snyder, quoted in one of these 25th anniversary articles, said this when asked about the PMRC. Actually, he was on the Wendy Williams show. This is just quoting what he said on the Wendy Williams TV show. He says, I was the poster boy for everything wrong with society. But let's cut to 25 years later, Snyder said. I'm still married. None of my kids have been busted for drug possession. Can Al and Tipper Gore say the same thing? I don't think so. We could dismiss this as the same kind of disrespectful snarkiness that made Senator Gordon so upset at Frank Zappa. Or we could look at it and ask if there's a case study to be found here. Perhaps Snyder has actually told us something we need to know about the difference between real parenting and fake parenting. The kind of parenting that the Gores did where they weren't willing to step down from their world tour type approach to really be parents to their children. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. I don't know. Certainly, though, we can assume that Tipper Gore believed what she was saying, that she couldn't be a parent on her own. She needed help. She needed the government to intervene. She needed the record labels to intervene. She needed somebody to do her job as a parent for her. And Dee Snyder stood up and said, no, it's not true. My wife and I don't need the kind of help that the U.S. Senate was offering. They didn't need the kind of help that some of the senators were trying to force the record labels to do on their behalf. So I'm going to be engaged in the lives of my children, and we'll see how it shakes out. 25 years later, it obviously shook out in his favor. Dee Snyder was right. The other argument that I think could have been made that wasn't, though, was whether or not this entire, quote, porn rock thing was new in the first place or whether it's as old as music itself, whether there might really be something about Ravel's Bolero that calls to mind sexual imagery and sexual activity. I can't speak for that, but I can certainly speak for some blues musicians who were around in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, who certainly would have been part of the potential music palette of somebody like Fritz Hollings, based on his age. Of course, the difference is, would he be listening to a black blues musician as a teenager growing up where he did in South Carolina, and with the attitudes he had, 
Maybe not. Maybe the reasons would strictly be musical taste. Maybe it would be the difference of just how accessible the music of the Deep South and New York City would have been in the Carolinas. Maybe the reason would have been racism. On the other side of a quick promotion, I'm going to play some of the music that existed way before anybody said anything sexual about Tipper Gore or her kids. It's history. And from about that time, 3,500, 3,000 B.C., until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events, that that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors, behind the backs of everyone else, steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? At the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com. I'm referring, of course, angrily to the Ice-T band Body Count, where they were railing about Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Center and its stickering and George H.W. Bush's you know, efforts to try to get uh, Ice-T kicked off his record label and to get his group Body Count banned from performing live in concert. Not solely because of the actual song Body Count or Cop Killer, for that matter, but perhaps because of some other things he had to say about, well, high-placed Washington wives. No, I'm going to play a couple of clips from an artist named Lucille Bogan. She's not unusual. If you go online looking for the blues musicians of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you're going to find a lot of lyrics that would have gotten a sticker if the stickers had been around back then. Uh, the one I'm going to play you was not commercially released as a 45. But it's interesting that the problem that the PMRC was trying to identify was more than just these songs being played on the radio. It was more about the fact that some of that music existed in the first place. Well, here's the other side of the story. A song called Shave em Dry. I got nipples on my titties, big as the end of my thumb. I got something between my legs, I'll make a dead man come out. Baby, won't you shave them dry? No, no, no. Won't you grind me, baby? Grind me until I cry. Say, I fucked all night, and all the night is cold, baby. And I feel just like I want to fuck some more. Great God, Daddy, grind me, honey. In the interest of only excerpting, not trying to give Lucille Bogan any more time, for example, than I gave to Frank Zappa, I'm just going to play a couple of short clips. The other one I'm going to put at the very end, perhaps after the theme music at the close of the show. Lucille Bogan, Shave Em Dry. I guess if I tried to sum this up with one simple phrase, one simple mantra, try not to be a hypocrite. The First Amendment gives us plenty of leeway to look past things which we disapprove of because we have constitutional mandates to not flip out over things. It's one thing to say there's a standard that says you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. That's the example that some of the senators thought they were following by trying to ban an album because they didn't like its music video. But the reality is, if the person who bought the album wanted it in their home, if they were right to tell the record store that parental advisory lyrics were not a problem, and if the person telling the record clerk that was true, if this 17 or 18-year-old kid doesn't have 
parents who are going to flip out over this particular kind of lyrical content. Maybe because those parents have read the first few chapters of the Bible, and they're familiar with some pretty violent stuff that has happened in the name of God and in the name of Scripture, and therefore they can be a little bit more tolerant of what you find in everyday, ordinary human nature. The reality is that there was plenty of sexually charged lyrical content and violent, gun-slinging country and western lyrical content that has been around since we've been writing words on paper and putting them to song. My plan right now in early October is to put out a comments show. It's been, it will have been a year by then since the last one I've done. I have some comments that I can use to respond to a Your Points and Questions episode, but if you have other points and questions I should consider, now's a really good time to send them at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.